All right, folks, Jose Nino here with another episode of El Nino Speaks. Today, I have the great pleasure of bringing back on Jeff Dice. And for those who listen to, have been listening to my show over the past year, you may have remembered Jeff's first appearance uh, when he was president of the Mises Institute, but now he's moved on to some new projects. So, Jeff, uh, tell us what you've been up to lately and what what things you have in store uh, with respect to uh, free market projects and whatnot? Well, I think since the last time I spoke with you, I left the Mises Institute. I'm now uh, general counsel at a company called Monetary Metals. We're doing uh, a lot of different uh, precious metals leases and bonds around the world, particularly in the Middle East, in Turkey and Dubai. So we're trying to pull some of that moneyness out of physical metals that are otherwise sitting around doing nothing all over the world. So that's a, an interesting project for me. And I'm uh, still writing and, and uh, creating a substack and a couple other things as well. So I still have a little bit of my time and energy in that world of um, persuasion, we might call it. But mostly I'm, uh, I'm very busy basically doing deal work as a lawyer for this precious metals company. So it's been a big change, but an interesting year. Yeah, I, I want to talk about specifically the metals, like the precious metals, because that is um that is a practical and relevant type of sector these days, especially when you have so much economic uncertainty and instability popping off worldwide. Do you believe that precious metals will start to get like more mass adoption as and even potentially be used by governments towards like quasi gold standards, if you will, as economies worldwide start to destabilize? Well, I don't think precious metals are going to be money anytime soon, but I do think they're going to be financial assets in the sense that people are going to use them to finance business and production. Right now, it's really hard to get bank lending. It's really hard to get credit uh, for startups. It's really hard to get venture capital. It's very hard to get angel investors. Uh, it's just a very tough lending environment out there. Interest rates have gone up quite a bit, and it certainly appears we are headed towards, if we're not already, in a recession. Uh, so the question becomes, where will businesses get capital? And one answer, not the only answer, is that there's a lot of capital laying around in the form of physical precious metals. It's in central bank storage. It's in private bank storage. It's in trusts, in businesses, and households all over the world. And so there's this huge financial asset, 13 odd trillion dollars worth of gold, just for example, apart from platinum, silver, other metals. And it's, it's not really being used. It's sitting around. And, and not only are people not getting a return on it, they're usually paying. They're paying for storage. They're paying for insurance. So, you know, I, I don't think that the powers that be are going to let any sort of metallic money come back into vogue because... I'm sure your listeners have heard of the BRICS proposal, but at the end of the day, any kind of commodity-backed money issued by government, it requires fiscal discipline that Western governments just don't have, and I don't see where they're going to get it. But I do think that uh, commodities are going to do better than equities and bonds over the next 10 years. I think physical stuff like energy, oil, natural gas, food, agricultural commodities, and precious metals are going to do well. And obviously, I'm watching Bitcoin very closely on a day-to-day -day basis, too. So that's a whole different subject. 
Yeah, it's like a whole different can of worms. Now, going back to holders of precious metals, based on your research, are central banks the largest holders or are there other entities that hold larger amounts of um, precious metals? No, central banks are far and away the largest, and uh, the United States is far and away the largest of all those central banks. And number two, Germany, which is kind of interesting. And so the Chinese, the, the Asian central banks, uh, the Indian central banks, South African, Russian, uh, all of these central banks hold gold as well, and they are increasing their holdings faster, much faster than Western central banks. So physical gold is flowing from West to East. But they were so far behind the West. Even France, the French central bank, which you might not think about much about, has uh, more gold holdings than, than uh, let's say, India. But that's changing. And I think in the next decade or so, we're going to find out that a lot of governments around the world have just been issuing currencies and getting away with it and not backed by anything. And it's basically a claim on the future productivity of that nation, the nation that's issuing that currency. And the United States has been uh, getting away with this for a long, long time, as you know. And, and I worry quite a bit that the future is is nigh and that we're going to start paying the price for that. And, and what that price is going to look like is that as Americans, people, at least if you're an average American, your, your paycheck and your investments and your savings are in US dollars, that those are all going to be worth less. And we're not going to be and feel as wealthy as we did. It's kind of inside baseball, but I've always been curious, how do these central banks acquire gold, silver, other precious metals? Well, it depends on where they purchase it, but they they buy from the big exchanges like COMEX, and they often use dollars, sometimes euro. Sometimes you know the Chinese central bank is using yuan, but they're paying a, a hellacious premium. There's a, a real a devaluation in the Chinese yuan relative to a lot of other currencies, including gold. So generally speaking, they're trading either their own national currency or another currency that they hold in sufficient number, which would generally be, you know, dollars or euro for that. But, uh, you know, it's just, it's just interesting to me that uh, even Bitcoiners fall prey to this, but a lot of people across the political spectrum like to say, you know, gold bugs are stuck in this old model and this and that. And that may be true, but what if gold is akin to fire or the wheel or some kind of technology that, that's still with us after many thousands of years? So I think gold still has something to say. I think it still has a role to play. And frankly, the fact that it's still $2,000 or whatever it is shows that it has a, a nominal dollar value above and beyond just its, its use, let's say, for jewelry or industry. So why would it have that? If gold has no financial uh, aspect to it, if it has no moneyness, as Hayek said, why does it still sell and trade at what I consider a premium well above its jewelry and industrial use? I, I would argue it's because it still is a financial asset. It still does have an element of moneyness and that people who write it off are might be wrong. Oh, you know, yes. I mean, I'm a Bitcoin reviewer or like a maxi, like some people would say that, but I still, I think that analogy is very apt that it's uh, like the wheel. It's still going to be around. Um, yeah, to be sure, governments are not going to adopt it because like fis the fiscal restraint dynamic has gone out the window. That's not coming back anytime soon, but I still think it will be with us for sure. Now, 
with respect to other precious metals in times of economic upheaval, um, we already know about gold, silver, the, like those are the big two. What other precious metals do people gravitate towards um, in times of, and like in any period of economic unrest? Well, platinum has been kind of in the doldrums, but I think it's going to have a bit of a breakout. And there are some metals involved in the mining process, like lithium, for example. Lithium mining is very metal intensive and uh, all of these dopey governments around the West are hell-bent on imposing electric cars on us, which is, of course, as in a, in a sick irony, is going to cause tremendous environmental degradation. Oh, yes. In the form of lithium mining, uh, and sometimes not under the happiest circumstances for the workers, let's just say. You know, it's going to make some Chinese sewing sweatshop where they're making Nikes look pretty nice. But, you know, all that aside, I, I think that if you watch the Daily Commodities Report in the Wall Street Journal online or the COMEX or someplace like that, and just check out the precious metals, uh, read up a little bit about uh, lithium mining, read up a little bit about silicon and other other things being used in devices like Apple. And, you know, there might be, might be some opportunities there. But I do think that the next 10 years, there's going to be a real resurgence of the physical economy. Stuff, you know, uh, freight on trains, I think that the software, which has really the, been the leading industry in America for many decades, really in a certain sense, uh, I think software may have peaked relative to other industries, and we're going to see a resurgence of the non-digital, the old analog economy. Uh, again, agricultural commodities, precious metals commodities. I think oil and natural gas may struggle for the next couple of years. If there's a recession, of course, oil demand drops. But in in, in the longer term, I think all of those uh, do very, very well relative to equities and bonds. And if you go back and read Jimmy Rogers' book that he came out with, I want to say it's 2004. So gosh, that's almost 20 years old now, uh, called Hot Commodities. That's really uh, what got me interested in and, and trying to understand, if you go to the Wall Street Journal, for example, trying to understand the ticker and, and, and what commodities do and how futures work and, and all that. So, I mean, I'm sure your listeners know that whether it's real estate or anything else physical, that that, that I, I don't want to be ideological. I don't think we should be ideological with our personal finances, but you know there is a comfort there in that we we understand these things better than we might understand certain markets for stocks, and so that's I, I like to to stick with things I understand. That point you raised about the hard economy coming back with like freight and all that stuff uh, definitely raise some eyebrows uh, for me. What do you think are some of like the primary propellants of that trend going back to like more of like a hands-on economy, if you will? Well, a lot of it is just that governments have shot themselves in the foot by shutting down coal plants, by shutting down uh, re the refining capabilities. Doesn't matter how much oil you have, doesn't matter how much oil you pump. What matters is, is how much you can refine and turn into an actual product that works in an automobile. So basically, the United States decided a long time ago it wasn't going to build any new refineries, which it, really since the 70s, which was a catastrophic mistake. Uh, ba basically, since Fukushima, I want to say in 2011, the world has only brought one new nuclear power plant online. That was actually in Georgia, near me, 
it wasn't a new facility, but it was one new reactor within the existing plant with three or four other reactors. But even that was 10 years late and way over budget with all the regulatory stuff. I mean, Germany has basically shut down its nuclear altogether and its coal. France, God bless them, we think of the French as maybe to the left of the Germans or more socialist than the, the Brits or you know whatever our perception is. But when it comes to energy, they've been uh, very forward thinking. So they still have relatively reliable, cheap, and let's and incredibly clean nuclear. But the idea that we've had this war with Ukraine, uh, which has affected not only energy uh, production, but also sanctions on Russian production and shipment. And then we've had the Nord Stream pipeline blow up. We've had all the wheat production in those eastern steppes of Ukraine basically reduced or, or terminated. And so it, it's kind of a perfect storm. And I think that rational actors, and that may not be the woke moron uh, governments in the West, but rational actors are going to seize on on this and uh, start producing oil, natural gas, uh, refineries, and uh, wheat, and all kinds of stuff, because that's what the world needs. It doesn't need stupid windmills. It doesn't need electric cars. It doesn't need hydro. It doesn't need any of these things. It needs real, reliable, actual energy that is dense, you know, produces dense kilowatts or whatever it might be, and it, it needs to be cheap and affordable. That really is wealth. I mean, energy and wealth are indistinguishable. That's how you have air conditioning. That's how you have cars and transport. Uh, that's how you power these incredible new cities in China. So, you know, unserious people, and that I would include most of the West, unserious people will continue to shoot themselves in the foot, but serious people will understand that you have to produce stuff. And that's why I think what we could call the real or physical or tangible economy is going to have a, a bull run in the next decade. I tend to agree with that as well. I, um, I like sometimes like I get like unease whenever I'm just like online and doing, um, just like buying a bunch of stuff. I said, those feels there's something like fake to it <laughs> or, or, or like artificial. Whereas whenever I go to like buy like actual equipment for like fixing like my apartment or whatever, I feel like there's something like real to that or yes. yeah. Or, or like more importantly, the software, the software stuff. Yeah, there's just like this whole multitude of software programs um, that I'm always just having like to keep track of and all this stuff. And I, I don't know, I, I like having like some physical stuff in my life. Like call me all old fashioned or whatever. But yeah, well, you you tend to get some fatigue. In other words, the human ear and brain and eye can can only process things. Uh, down to a certain size, which means you can't really make phones much smaller. In fact, they're trending bigger. And then just the proliferation of apps. I don't know about you, but I get I get sick of having too many apps on my phone. Yes, it feels cluttered. It feels it. It almost creates a form of stress or something. What are these all doing for me? And some of them I sort of need, like my company requires them to submit travel expenses, that sort of thing. But I think between COVID and what I fear. Don't hope for this, Jose, but what I fear is going to be a, a really tough economy for the foreseeable future. You know, that tends to, to bring people back a little bit more, hopefully, to some sort of grounding or, um, you know, understanding that life is about more than trinkets. And Americans have really, really 
gorge themselves on trinkets for a long time. And, you know, we've had more expensive cars and more expensive college educations and bigger useless houses and, uh, you know, fancier vacations and all this kind of stuff. All, a lot of that has been courtesy of our U.S. dollar and its strength and, and our ability to essentially export inflation to other countries while we live beyond our means. But if that starts to come to an end, whether they like it or not, whether there's almost a spiritual dimension to it, I think Americans are going to have to come back and be, be a little more grounded in their lives and uh, get comfortable with less stuff. Yeah, uh, people are going are going to have to have like a definitely more of a Spartan lifestyle. And yeah, speaking of grounding, I think you will see uh, more people like all these people who go to like trendy cities because they are like they so they have like so called trauma of living like in rural Iowa or some like reactionary like part of like the U.S. hinterland. They're gonna just have to come back to like and like actually like touch grass. And become part of like the real world because I feel like a lot of this like massive um, migration of people to insert trendy city X. Um, some of it strikes me as very artificial, especially if it's like tech sector related and all of that. But I think we will be seeing some shifts um, in terms of people's like consumption, migratory patterns, and even like the way. Um, they start interacting with people. Now, speaking of age demographics and cohorts, based on your experience thus far in like the um, precious metals business, have you seen an uptick in younger people getting into, into holding precious metals? Because it strikes me more of an activity that people who have considerable disposable income, like that are definitely like older, maybe like 35 and up at the lowest range, but that are definitely like more, more um, embedded in the workforce and finally have like some savings and all that get into. Yeah, I think, that, I mean, the driving interest in precious metals is still very boomerish. No doubt about that. And a lot of younger people, I think, are pretty heavily, I don't know about invested financially, but they're pretty interested in Bitcoin. I hope and I pray they're not interested in shit coins. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that's not, that's beyond my control. I'll just say that's the story of our times. Yeah. But I do think, yes, I do think the under 40s and the under 30s have a real profound sense that of being ripped off and not having it as good as their boomer parents, which is absolutely 100% true. That is a legitimate beef. Uh, I do think that the Fed and, it, well, not just the Fed, but also our fiscal policy uh, and also our local policies, our housing policies, et cetera, they create really serious intergenerational strife. I mean, you know, through no merit of their own, boomers just sort of came along at a certain time when you could get a house for X and an average job paid Y and that was that, you know? Whereas I look at these younger people today and you see like a really crappy older ranch house built in the 40s in Anaheim, California, costs 800 grand. I mean, on a small lot. I mean, come on. So, you know, they, they really do feel like they need to find something. I, I don't think most of them are heading towards precious metals because 
they just don't see a number go up enough. And you can't blame people for wanting to see number go up because inflation go up. And so I think most people, especially younger people, are out there chasing yields. Like there's, you got to have some hustle culture. You have to have some startup. You have to have some side thing. You have to have some, you know, flipping houses or setting up a, an Amazon or an Etsy store or something like that. I mean, I think I, I do see that out there because a lot of younger people just have despair that they just say, hey, you know, this isn't going to work for me financially. But there's something else happening, which is where younger people just say, well, then screw it. I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to have kids, you know, and I'm just going to, I don't have, I don't, not really going to think about retirement. So I'm just going to spend a lot of my money on, on traveling. Or I'm going to spend a lot of my money on a fancy car or whatever. I, I think we see that too. You know, so the, the interest amongst young people is trying to figure out how and why they got ripped off simply by when they were born, which is terrible. And, and the American dream has been severely impaired by fiat and other forces. But I hope young people will start to look at um, gold and silver as, as viable for them. I hope that the gold and silver will re- reassert some of their moneyness. But we'll see. The, the boomers are going to die with a lot of precious metals. So that uh, presumably it's going to be handed down. So maybe that's what it'll take. Yeah, I mean, uh, as crass as it sounds, if you look at history, a lot of political change tends to be affected whenever it goes into effect whenever one generation is just totally out of the picture it's just like that's just a brutal arithmetic a lot of times of this beast in terms of precious metal activity is it true that there's more purchases of like gold and other like transactions of gold and like the so-called developing economies than the u.s and that's largely owing to just the fact that developing economies have much more volatile central banking policies and more um, institutionally like unsound economic frameworks that govern them. It is absolutely true. Uh, and it's a, a combination of cultural, political, economic. A lot of the interest in precious metals is in places like Dubai. It's in India. It's certainly in China. And it's in Turkey. If if you live if you've lived in a country that ha- that doesn't have a lot of political or economic freedom, if you lived in a country that has experienced really bad uh, monetary def- inflation like Turkey has uh, devaluation, if you've lived in a country where things aren't very free and there's capital controls, you know gold and silver look a lot different. But also there's a cultural component. You know precious metals, especially gold, are a big part of the history of places like China and India, they're, they're part of a dowry in a, in a wedding. They're just, just culturally speaking, people have held more of their family's wealth, let's say in jewelry or in, uh, at home, as opposed to in, a, you know, in, in the typical American has a 401k with probably a, a combination of equities and mutual funds, ETFs, and then maybe some bonds. I mean, that's sort of your common middle-class person phenomenon here in the, in the U.S. But in India, the, the you know middle-class wealth is held very differently. And generally speaking, I, I, I'm speaking very, very generally, obviously, but generally speaking, gold would play a, a bigger role in the personal or, uh, or individual wealth in a place like that. In China, you know, the Chinese are desperate for physical gold. They're paying a hellish hellish premiums, not only above spot, but also 
by basically having yuan and and pay, you know having to pay more because the yuan the way it's trading against other currencies so yeah the developing world whatever you want to however you want to term that i guess china is china still the developing world i don't know yeah that, that's a thing yeah <laughs> emerging economies or whatever yeah that's where the that's where the action is with precious metals absolutely yeah, that's actually a good point about the the dowries and all that because precious metals is like so embedded in some of those cultures. It has like a really high subjective value for people there. They don't just see it like industrial use for like industrial purposes, like say like in more fully like developed service sector economies in the West. Um, I'm curious though for other countries because um, I've noticed this in my uh, dealings with a lot of people like in Germany and Austria and countries that historically speaking, they still have people that love to like put cash under the mattress for times of economic um, upheaval and whatnot. Is there a lot of gold activity there based on your uh, analysis of the way gold moves and all that? The Germans and the Austrians definitely have a more of a cash culture and less of a credit card and debit card culture. Than America, so that you know, they tend to to be a lot more private, and and so there's more private companies as opposed to public companies in Germany, for example, which which is still even with all their ridiculous guilt and 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 all their woke problems. I mean, still a very productive economy relative to most of the world. German wealth is a very interesting and unique thing. It tends to be very private, tends to be in privately held businesses, you know, not public. So it, it's hard to know. But they do have a cash economy. They we do know that Germans, German citizens, put away millions and millions of Deutschmarks, physical Deutschmarks, in closets, in safes, under their bed, wherever, uh, during the Euro transition because they didn't quite, they didn't quite trust it. They didn't quite know it would work, and in in a certain sense, it hasn't worked in terms of of its purchasing power, of course, but. And I've been in Austria a couple of times in the last few years. And if, you know, as you're walking around just on the streets, there's, you know, the little street vendors or whatever, everything's cash. They just don't have that credit card mentality. And of course, northern, northern parts of Europe, like the Scandinavian countries, they don't even use credit and debit cards. I mean, everything there, they're paying almost exclusively with their phones. And so they have the opposite of a cash culture in the Scandinavian co- countries. I suspect the Germans and Austrians are buying gold and holding gold. I just suspect they're doing so quietly. And uh, the the German Central Bank, despite accepting the euro, never, ever reduced all that gold it's held for many, many decades. So I think that's, in other words, actions speak louder than words. And people still know the Germans more than anyone else knew that they would be worse off under the euro because they were the most productive country in Europe and that they are effectively subsidizing the rest of the eurozone. And so a- apart from their sort of cucked World War II hangover, the Germans are pissed and and they should be. The, the eurozone and, and the broader euro project, the European Union is a disaster for them and now they've got politicians who are ruining their industrial base, ruining their energy, their their power grid, and it's just it's just an absolute shame to see a country like that brought down to to what it's becoming. 
it, Germany is interesting too because I'm more geopolitics focused now, and they made some half-assed overtures. Nevertheless, still like have deviated ways in terms of somewhat looking east with respect to Russia and even China in a way that would very much anger a lot of the geopolitical tinkerers and the London, uh, DC, and Brussels axis. And shifting the conversation more to like geopolitical developments, how do you think the Russo-Ukrainian conflict is impacting the precious metals sector? Well... You know, I think war and, and turmoil and, and uncertainty, I don't want to say they're good for precious metals. They increase the price often as quoted in dollars, right? I mean, that's precious metals just sit there. They don't really go up and down in value. They go up and down relative to the currency you're comparing them with. But, you know, the sanctions that were imposed on Russia a couple of years ago always backfire. Those are always crazy. And so as one of the I don't know if we should say unforeseen, but one of the unintended consequences of those sanctions imposed on Russia, which, you know, a pretty big economy, it's kind of, it's not that very impressive per capita, but it's still 285 million people or something like that, I think. A lot of billionaires. So a lot of gold attempted to flow out of Russia because people were worried about sanctions. They were worried about uh, being unable to use their wealth, you know, there there were Russian yachts sitting in some place like Bodrum in Turkey, getting seized uh, under these international sanctions. Uh, you know, so it's it's a whenever you start to impose capital controls, which sanctions really are, they're just unique capital controls on one country. Uh, people will try to get around them, and so people tried to move their gold out to Dubai. And here's the thing about gold: is it's a lot like oil, Jose. It's it's fungible. Even if a you know a gold kilo bar has a stamp on it from a certain refinery that shows its source, well, you can just melt it down and recast it without the stamp. And you know the only assay that can be done to that gold bullion bar, that kilo bar, is its purity. So all you can say about it is it's you know it's it's ninety nine point nine percent pure gold. You can't tell where it came from. You can't tell uh, whether it was Russian or Belarusian, which is another naughty country right now. And so, you know, the, the powers that be hate this. They apply all that anti-money laundering and know-your-customer stuff to gold transfers. And they've basically put Dubai on notice by they, I mean the Western regulator powers that be. They basically put Dubai on notice that Russian metal is verboten and shouldn't be refined or handled or accepted or put into banks or vaults or whatever in Dubai. And Dubai is really the new London for gold. It's the, epi it's the world's worldwide epicenter for the gold trade now. And, it, and so as a result of that, guess what happens? Well, a black market develops and there's a markup on, you know, Russian gold still comes into Dubai physically, maybe on ships, maybe on yachts, who knows? It still gets melted down and refined and turned into, you know, wink, wink, not Russian gold. But the refinery is is basically acting illicitly. And so it charges a, a you know, a hefty, a hefty percentage to do that. So, you know, sanctions are, are just the kind of thing that always backfire. Gold, it, it's 
They cause gold to move around in unnatural ways. But human nature is, is understandable. People don't want to lose their money. And so they move it away from places where they think it might be in trouble. So it's definitely affected the flows of gold out of Russia. One interesting dynamic I've noticed about the Russo-Ukrainian conflict, to paraphrase this anonymous Twitter poster named Nikolo Soldo, that this whole conflict really was just about the U.S. sending as much military aid to Ukraine to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian, while also imposing this bevy of sanctions, like the U.S. and its satrapies in NATO, imposing all these sanctions to basically sanction Russia to the last European citizen with $5 in their pocket. And in light of these developments, with the enormous energy costs that have exploded across Europe, um, and to a lesser extent, the U.S., do you think that this effective deplatforming, economic deplatforming of Europe from um, Russia will lead to like Europe becoming even more geoeconomically irrelevant. But we already have like European economies for the most part largely overregulated. But now with this sanctions push and just total uh, disconnection from the Russian economy for the most part, do you think that Europe is looking at a 21st century of increasing economic stagnation, if not wholesale reduction in the overall in their overall living standards? Yes, absolutely. I think Europe is becoming more and more of a basket case. Uh, it's sad. You, you got to have energy, and we've all read these anecdotal stories about. Some person in Europe, maybe in Prague, maybe in Germany, having their their monthly power bill quadruple. I mean, think how unsustainable that must be for them. You know, they have very cold winters throughout the central and northern parts of Europe, which we're about to to get hit with again. Last year's winter was pretty mild. You know, if you're not producing energy and it's awfully hard to make your economy grow. And, you know, the, the way, one of the ways you create economic growth is you produce energy more and more efficiently and cheaper and, and, and frankly, cleaner. I mean, you know, but Europe's decided not to do that. America's almost decided not to do that. So I don't, you know, all of this because of our insatiable atavistic need to provoke Putin, I mean, you know, the, these people honestly believe they really think that left to his own devices, you know, after Ukraine, after he retakes the Donbass and this, that uh, Vladimir Putin is going to roll tanks into Poland and then into Czechoslovakia because he wants to recreate the Warsaw Pact. I mean, there are people who believe that with a straight face and they're not just on the the uh, fringes of some horrible, you know, Reddit thread. They're in the U.S. foreign policy establishment in Washington, D.C., in the Pentagon. So when you're that distance from reality, it's awfully hard to have a sensible economic policy. I mean, the, this, green new, this green energy thing is so divorced from the reality of what we need to power and fuel and air condition and farm the world. 
you know, I mean, people are just absolutely delusional that we're going to do this with so-called renewable or clean energy. It's just, it's just delusionally false. But what's not delusional is their willingness to impoverish us uh, while they pursue these, these nonsensical plans. So, Europe is a is a cautionary tale. I mean, uh, America is doing still doing much better than Europe. We have a much better economy, much better jobs situation here. Uh, the dollar is still stronger. So, let's learn. I mean, Putin in Ukraine, not our problem. It's not our business. And I'm really, really sick of these warmonger types who are just divorced from any notion of the cost to Americans of of funding this crap. It's just insane. Do you believe that this funding will continue indefinitely or will um, economic reality slap DC in the face and just compel it to like stop this these shenanigans? Well, isn't that funny how the... the uh, Attacks in Israel all of a sudden took Ukraine right yeah. off the front page. Uh, you know that that just goes to the U.S. attention span and uh, our inability to 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 sort of follow more than one thing at once. But we don't have the money. the uh, The budget is just in in terrible shape. And uh, let let's face it, Zelensky is a puppet. We want him because he's going to make. Ukraine multiculti and pro-gay and cosmopolitan and basically it'll be a, a neoliberal Western output right on Putin's doorstep. That's why we support him. I mean, if, if he were animated by Ukrainian Orthodox Church and wanted to, you know, I mean, we we wouldn't be supporting him at all. So it's just. It's, uh, you know, he's a useful idiot. He'll, he'll either become very, very wealthy and end up on some, with some offshore bank account, or he'll end up conveniently dead if he outlives his usefulness to the West. Those are my predictions. But it's a real tragedy that we allow basically a regional conflict between, a, you know, very nasty history between Russia and Ukraine, where the Russians try to sort of ethnically uh, push Russians in there. And now there's a lot of Russian speaking and Russian loyalist people. I admit that all that's very, very nasty and that the Ukrainians have a, an independent nation. They have an independent language. They have an independent church. They deserve sovereignty if that's what they want. But the very people who are saying that right now hate national sovereignty. They hate independence, right? I mean, they're Western neoliberal globalists. So they're full of it. So I, you know, I wish I wish this thing would end, and I wish Americans would get it, get it out of their head that we can participate in every in all the trouble around the world, as PJ Work called it, and that somehow it will be costless to us. Well, it won't be costless to us. So this this economic ignorance is what allows foreign policy pie in the sky to just be sold year after year to the American public. And, and we've actually got Nikki Haley as a viable candidate for the U.S. presidency who would probably sanction three or four wars at once. She, she would be happy to go to war with Iran, uh, with Putin in Ukraine, with, with the Chinese. Who knows? I mean, the, the, these people... I heard Senator Tom Cotton saying that we need a permanent uh, aircraft carrier group in the South China Sea to protect Taiwan. 
I mean, this is just deeply unserious. This is like kindergarten level hysteria, and yet it's 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 driving things. Yeah, we, we are run by total lunatics. But in the case of like, and um, the case of like Nikki Haley, like she's like every like, um, like affirmative action hustler in the Republican Party's like wet dream, just saying, hey, we got a woman elected, and like, yeah, just ha- have like a neocon in heels and a skirt. Uh, pushing for like the most like loony geopolitical machinations like that kind of stuff is 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 nonsensical and it's really uh, emblematic of the state of decay of foreign policy discourse in the u.s and yeah no it's actually funny you mentioned the israel thing and it's actually very amusing too because once the focus went on Israel, you're starting to see the bobblehead media now actually put out like damning pieces of like the war in Ukraine is not going as planned and all this stuff. And they're kind of like preparing the like they're laying the groundwork for um, throwing Ukraine under the bus because it's already served its purpose of trying to bleed out Russia as much as possible and then shift gears to another conflict zone in the Middle East and and eventually like the pivot uh, to Asia against containing China. Do you think the Israel conflict will, will escalate any further or will this just be like another episode of like the, uh, what I would say is like the forever war between the Palestinians and the Jewish population in Israel? Wow. I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's definitely a forever war. And I don't think there's any way to solve it. I mean, the boat, the, these idea of historical or biblical claims. But I also know that if it's a forever war for Israel, it's a forever war for the U.S. Because we can't get out of this symbiotic relationship and funding everything Israel does. So uh, it, it's really a bad situation. And uh, uh, you know, I I notice all these all these all this wealth in the West. And um, a, a lot of wealthy billionaire Jewish folks. Okay, so let's say there's roughly five million Palestinians. They're not all in Gaza, but you know, five million times two hundred thousand dollars each is a trillion dollars. I mean, two hundred thousand dollars for a Palestinian, which is a, has a pretty low per capita GDP, per, pretty low per capita annual income. You know, that would be the kind of life changing money uh, that would allow them to move. You know, and maybe I know that the rest of the Arab world and the Muslim world doesn't particularly love the Palestinians, doesn't particularly want them. But the one thing that brings that Arab and Muslim world together, the only thing that makes that world, you know, create solidarity is when Israel goes over the top and, you know, get goes all out against the Palestinians like they've been doing the last couple of months. Um, so there's no. I mean, there, I, I have no solution to that other than give every Palestinian two hundred grand and make a move. Um, I know a lot of Palestinians would be like, "Well, we, you know, we shouldn't have to move. Why should the Israelis get the land?" I don't know why, but th- at this point, I don't. You know, other than separating them, at some point, I'm sick of it as an American. I'm sick of being asked to have a strong opinion on it. I'm sick of funding it, and the the whole thing is just. Why should these ancient uh, conflicts be such the topic du jour in America? It makes no sense. One thing to note, because uh, you this goes back to your 
quote unquote infamous blood and soil speech. And I tell this to people this Israel versus um, Hamas uh, conflict is not this ideological struggle that the way the Wall Street Journal or Conservatism Inc. is like talking about. This is a blood and soil thing. For example, I know plenty of Israelis from across like the most like a uh, broad of political spectrums from the hardest like reactionary, like w- they want like Talmudic law Israeli to like secular liberal Israelis. They're all like in agreement. Like they need to like crush Hamas and like ultimately ethically cleanse Israel. And then on the Palestinian side, you'll see like secular Palestinians and even the most like radical like Hamas types like that want like some form of um, reconquest of the territory, if not like total destruction of the Israeli state. This is like an existential like identity matter at hand. And this is a type of conflict that is foreign to most people. But I think there is a resurgence of this because um, popping off. You look at Russia, Ukraine, it is very much there is like an ethnic dimension to this especially like in Eastern Ukraine and even the most like obscure of geopolitical conflicts, like what happened in between Azerbaijan and Armenia, which funny enough, Azerbaijan is a country that is armed by Israel um, and the Turks as well. I basically are laying the groundwork for like a massive, like ethnic cleansing of Armenians. And we could see in our lifetime, like the destruction of like the Armenian state just uh, due to a multitude of factors, it, having a corrupt domestic government and also a really aggressive Azeri neighbor. And I think that I like th- this idea that we're like beyond like civilizational national identities is nonsense. It's making a really fierce comeback. And I think a lot of people are not ready for that. Yeah, isn't that great? Th- this all this goofy neocon end of history stuff that we were going to have just civic nations and that nations were just ideas. They weren't specific places with specific people and specific history. It's just absolute nonsense. Uh, humanity has absolutely not progressed onto this next uh, globalist level that the, uh, you know, the world economic forum types envision for us. Israel is a, is an incredibly poignant example of that it is absolute blood and soil. Only Americans have this dopey idea that, really, since Woodrow Wilson, that you fight for ideals or you you wage wars for democracy or some sort of abstract idea, as opposed to just waging wars for land and spoils. It really is absurd. And I mean, I don't want to get nostalgic for Henry Kissinger. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't reached that to that point in my life, Jose, but. I mean, he looks like a sober thinker. He's he's smarter than these bobbleheads. The Tom yeah. Cottons, I'll tell you what. Yeah. No, it, I actually agree, and I've always stressed this since, since Henry Kissinger's death, that like a guy like Henry Kissinger um, is just too high IQ to be involved in the current foreign policy debates that are in D.C., like much less a guy like John Mearsheimer, who feels like a dude who's like a 19th century like foreign policy scholar in a um, arena of 21st century amateurs talking about this type of stuff. But that's like the story of this epoch, man. Yes, it really is. And there's not a lot of 
I guess for lack of a better term, what we used to call statesmen. Um, I don't know. The, the younger politicians across the West are just deeply unserious, deeply unimpressive people. We've seen what college presidents are. We've seen what these people in the so-called deep state and the administrative agencies are. I mean, these are not well-read people. These are not people who know a lot about history. They certainly don't know anything about economics. So it's it's really scary. You know, you've got uh, the feminization of the West, where where people just want to they just want to have happy outcomes, but without understanding political or economic realities. I mean, this is just. This is a real problem across the West. And I think Henry Kissinger, just because he lived so long to 100 and, and could sort of stretch back into all the way back into the, you know, the Nixon days, the Johnson days before that, it just his death sort of brings home the fact that we're in a very different era now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a changing of the guard for sure. I mean, he really like, um, yeah, like people like Kissinger, it's almost like uh, Nixon as well. Like if you read like Richard Nixon's like uh, geopolitical musings on foreign affairs, the guy was erudite, and like you would just not hear that from like a any Republican these days. Like from the likes of like Nikki Haley, like Tom Cotton, all these people. There's like nothing upstairs with these people. They they don't have any real like knowledge whatsoever. They don't. They're just not like well rounded like. The caliber of like statesmen, public intellectual or, or uh, journalists, it just pales in comparison. Like I, I just look at people like Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, or whatever. Apart from like really being really good political pundits and political figures, they were men of many talents. They weren't like these hyper specialized insects that we have like r- uh, running current affairs who even like suck at what they're like what their uh, so-called specialty is um, that we have now, but it, it is like a true sign of like decline. Well, and not just politicians and journalists, but if you look at academics and PhDs and public intellectuals, I mean, I know, you know, Paul Gottfried. Oh, yes. Is, I don't know if he's in his seventies or eighties, but you used to have to, basically know at least one foreign language even to get a PhD. I mean, now we have so many PhDs that are just watered down, especially PhDs in education like Dr. Jill Biden. They really don't know anything beyond some tiny little niche of their particular specialty. I mean, Paul Gottfried speaks several languages, has translated books in, in multiple languages, is what, very well read across economics, history, philosophy, literature, um, you, you know, those kind of people are just fading from the public consciousness. And we've got this sort of technocratic elite now that that fancies themselves, you know, whether that's the Ivy Leagues, whether that's the Washington, D.C. regulatory state, whether that's the mainstream media, whatever it might be. And they, they basically all are don't know what they're doing. And. You know, you can get away with that in HR departments. You can get away with that in big law firms where dummies like Michelle Obama can just be coddled because the law firm makes enough money. You can get away with that in big companies like Google where they make so much money off of AdSense, and I mean cash money, that they can afford to have these ridiculous departments of useless people 
for diversity or whatever. But you can't get away with that when it comes to performing surgery. You can't get away with that when it comes to flying aircraft safely. You can't get away with that when it comes to designing and, and building bridges to hold the weight of a, a certain amount of traffic, you know. And so this competency crisis, say what you will, will about the boomers, their retirements or deaths are going to bring on a huge competency crisis, especially in the old physical world of plants, uh, turbines, 100%. wastewater treatment, right? I mean, not not tech companies, but the the old economy of physical stuff and and you know of water and sewer and electric and that sort of thing. I think we're going to be in for a, a real severe shock. Yeah, I um I remember hearing a podcast that actually um forget what it was that did allude to that that um he he said like there was a lot of boomer dunking on this podcast, but they did concede this that there is the boomers are one of like the last like competent generations when it comes to like real world stuff, and what we're gonna see once that die off occurs is an idiocratization of economic personal affairs to levels that we've never seen before and that's gonna and it's gonna be bad this is how you see like a once like how like civilizations like say for example greece that were the most advanced civilizations of epoch just turn into backwaters within the course of several uh, generations or a few centuries we could be seeing that unfold real time in the u.s because of that and it's gonna look like is something out of like a scene of idiocracy man than anything else. I, I um I used to when I first got into politics, I used to think that we were like on the cusp of like some like nineteen eighty-four state with like a really sophisticated technocracy trying to like sh- um shove a boot down our throats and all that. But I think now it's more like it's looking more like um we're entering like a kind of idiocracy style like failed state that like yeah it might exercise like tyrannical petty forms of tyranny, but it's just gonna be run by like stupid people from the highest bureaucracies to like your basic like services like going to like a McDonald's. I I uh I had like one time man when I was like a like a Burger King, this reminded me of it like when I uh asked for like a really basic order and I had to like repeat myself like eight times and then I realized oh I could actually speak Spanish. So I I did, I did I just ordered in Spanish and I got that problem sorted out like within two seconds. But I think that's what we're like headed like that that gave me like an epiphany of what we're like headed to like on a day-to-day basis. And so people are really not like grasping that. Yes, I think we are headed that way on a day-to-day basis. And uh, you see not just the competency crisis at the higher levels of technical jobs or jobs that require specialized knowledge in a factory or a plant or, a, or you know, something like we mentioned surgeons and aircraft people and that sort of thing. But uh, even basic jobs since COVID, the will to work has been so denuded in this country that if you go to places like nursing homes, those aren't particularly high paying jobs. Those aren't particularly fun jobs. Uh, they're very needed jobs, and you, you know they nursing homes across this country are understaffed. Uh, fast food places are struggling. Mm-hmm. You'll just yeah. notice this everywhere. Yeah, I've noticed with um, fast food places now. Um, whenever I just want to go in and just chill a bit to eat, like inside, they often have like the places are locked during regular hours because of like the yes. understaffing. 
Yeah, it's actually kind of interesting too when you think about it because of the rise of like Uber Eats and whatnot. Some types of like dining experiences, I wouldn't say they're going to go away, but they are like starting to fall by the wayside a bit. And some of the stuff that I used to like normally do, like if I were to talk to like a Zoomer about it or so like younger, they'll be like uh, almost thinking like I'm like an alien coming from like a totally different civilization. Yeah. It's because the the pace of technological change has accelerated. And so, you know, just the fact that you came of age before social media, that alone uh, probably makes your whole approach to life very different. Oh, 100%. Yeah. You could go a list on from like dating, all that stuff, like with apps and like going back to the app conversation, like I rarely use those apps, but I talk to like whenever I just go to like the gym or like yoga or whatever. Most of these people are on uh, like the apps and whatnot, and it, it it is like talking to people from a different total like civilization. But yeah, the, the technological change is huge. Do you think that this technological change though will start decelerating in a way? Because Peter Thiel, I remember in like the early 2010s, he talked about technological deceleration starting to occur with um, certain technological fields where it's not going to be a given that technology is going to continue to improve at breakneck speeds that we, that we could see like a slowdown, if not like in worst case scenario, a total like regression in terms of technological development. Do you think that there will reach like a kind of point where this will become uh, technological innovation will stagnate? Oh, absolutely. I think we're already there. Uh, and as Thiel points out, in areas other than software and maybe medicine, biotech, we really have been stagnant. Uh, air travel, space travel, uh, you know, we haven't seen a lot of growth there. We haven't really seen automobiles change that much. I mean, we've seen a huge acceleration in the, the processing speed of microchips, at least until COVID, when we found out all the microchips came from Taiwan. <laughs> Oh yeah, you know, in general, most of the great leaps forward have been in the software area and not in medicine or physics, or we're still sort of struggling with these autoimmune diseases. We're still struggling with cancer. We're still struggling with diabetes and heart disease and stroke. And, and, you know, we're real good at pushing pills and we're really good at, at making lots of money off chronic lifetime illness, but we're not so good at curing things which used to be the goal. And so I think you just look at history and a lot of times civilization goes sideways and a lot of times it goes backwards. It's not just a nice upward sloping graph. And this is, this is a, the hubris of the progressive left, uh, you know, that there's a d- deterministic arc to history and that everything's better now because, you know, we didn't have the civil rights act when the Wright brothers were f- figuring out how to fly an airplane or were, uh, you know, when NASA landed uh, on the moon, it was almost all white males or whatever you want to say. I mean, this is the progressive mindset is that everything is always getting better and the past is always bad and racist and retrograde. And this, this mentality, this presentism, it's, it's just absolute cancer. And if we're not careful, we're getting rid of standardized testing we're dumbing down requirements in high school and college, certainly in, in postgraduate. We're, um, we're losing literacy. We're losing numeracy. 
we're we're losing, we're dropping life expectancy. There, there's some pretty serious signs uh, on the wall of decline in the United States, and so to get that turned around is not going to be easy. Yeah, this is like puts things in perspective. Like if you were born in like the Civil War era, of like the U.S., or even like slightly before, you lived like in an agrarian society. But if you lived up until like the 1920s or 1930s, you saw this an otherwise agrarian economy finally introduce like aircraft, automobiles, and mass industrialization like within a general within your lifetime. But now, like, for my case, like, I'm about to hit, like, 33. I just saw, like, the advent of the internet and then, like, this proliferation of all these apps of very uh, social media apps of whatnot that may have, like, um, good use for, like, the work, the content creation work I do. But, like, this other set of apps, like, this scores of apps, like, are beyond, like, useless. Like, like, I don't see, like, how these things um, advance like civilization forward. And it does also, um, I think like in some of the fields that we've seen like improvements on, it seems to be like aesthetic almost like, uh, where, whether it's like performance, like enhancing drugs, like you just have like bigger muscles or like, uh, cosmetic surgeries to enhance your look or like basic, like dental innovations for, um, having like white teeth all around. You really don't see anything beyond like, surface level like innovations it seems that we've kind of been stuck on just more like like activities that boost consumption as opposed to like increasing production or just making the human experience just much better in terms of like quality of life and like longevity yes it does seem more uh, superficial and we like to kid ourselves that we live in the most tumultuous age and everything's so fast and changing but if you look at someone born in, let's say, the 1880s or 90s, uh, we could take Ludwig von Mises, born in the 1880s, lived right up until the early 1970s. I mean, he went from um, horse and buggy to automobiles. He went from, you know, candles to widespread electricity in households. He saw, you know, train travel explode in the West. He saw the advent of simple aircraft and then jet aircraft. He saw space travel. He saw the introduction of antibiotics. So in many ways, he saw more, more change from an agricultural to an industrial and then ultimately a uh, communication society from the 1880s to the 1970s. I, I would say, arguably, he saw far more change than you and I have seen. Oh, well, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, it's all the yeah. internet, and that's just us staring at screens. But that's not us living differently outside of those screens. Yeah, that, that is, like, fascinating because he lived in an, er- in an epoch, too, like, politically, where there were still, like, vestiges of royalty and empires. And now, and when he died, it just became, like, the cult of mass democracy and managerialism that <laughs> well world. imagine the you know it's still the Habsburg empire pre-world war one and then imagine new york city 1970s you know fort apache the bronx at that point basically so that's that's a lot of change in those uh, that's that's like three or four lifetimes oh yeah and yeah, and Mises himself was just another of these, like, because of his, like, uh, European upbringing. He had a very, like, arist- a natural aristocratic ethos, too. He knew also multiple languages and um, could write about 
subjects not just concerning economics, like those type of scholars and intellectuals you just cannot find these days. Well, you can find them all right, actually. They're probably an anonymous account on Twitter that's like trash-talking mainstream political commentators, but that's where they've been. Yeah, they're a proto-Ted Kaczynski or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, basically. Well, Jeff, it was um, great chatting with you. I think this is a great place to put a bookmark in this conversation. Could you let my listeners know where they can find you and your like latest works? Well, the easiest way is just to find me on Twitter, at Jeff Deist, D-E-I-S-T, all one word. And I uh, occasionally link to some of the things that we're working on at Monetary Metals and uh, some of my own personal writings. All right, man. Thank, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. And also to my audience, thank you so much for your generous attention. And with that, El Nino has spoken.